As the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide surged past 2 million earlier this week, it's becoming increasingly clear that this pandemic is exposing a wide range of vulnerabilities. It's also exposing inequities. In other words, COVID affects us all, just not equally. I'm John Finnegan, Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. Words matter. Words like inequality, marginalized, inhumane, vulnerable, and justice or injustice. We can debate their meanings, but it's hard to deny their impact. That's what this podcast is all about, acknowledging that these words aren't theoretical, but very real for the many people disproportionately affected by this pandemic. What's it like, for example, to face this pandemic when you are incarcerated, homeless, an immigrant, or a person of color? And why is the impact of the virus so different for these groups? Today is April 17th, 2020, and this episode is called COVID Affects Us All, Just Not Equally. I was bruised and battered, I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. Saw my reflection in the window, didn't know my own face. Brother, you're gonna leave me wasting away on the streets of Philadelphia. My morning was probably a lot like yours. Shower, breakfast, flip on the computer to see what's new with the coronavirus, and gear up to work from home. Pretty simple, pretty basic, but not things you and I could easily do if we were homeless. Say nothing of being homeless during a pandemic. It's a situation Dr. Margot Cushell, a UC San Francisco physician who studies homelessness and health, called an enormous crisis superimposed on an existing crisis. Another advocate for the homeless labeled it a nightmare on top of a nightmare. They are getting at an already existing vulnerable population in a healthcare crisis. That's Amy Gordon, a frontline family nurse practitioner with Hennepin County Healthcare for the Homeless. So whether they're sheltered homeless folks or unsheltered homeless folks, it brings up so many medical vulnerabilities in addition to people's vulnerabilities with being able to access bathrooms, hand-washing stations, clothing, food. So basic needs that all people should have the right to have, and they're not able to access the, the resources or the, the places in which they were able to get those needs met pre-pandemic. They are unable to get it now during the pandemic. You know, for about 15 years, I'd worked with homeless folks out in Northern California, and these things started to come into my mind, Amy, like, I can't panhandle like I used to. The restaurant dumpsters that I used to go to are empty. I can't even follow a stay-at-home order. Uh, where do I defecate? Where do I wash up? Yes, all of that. So Amy and her colleagues have had to do what a lot of healthcare providers are doing these days, improvise. We are trying to find creative ways to still provide healthcare access for our folks who do not have broadband access, but also trying to keep them out of emergency type settings or urgent care type settings, knowing that we want to reduce the number of people that are accessing those resources right now. So we within our project have come up with some creative ways of trying to still limit face-to-face -face visits, but still providing care. And they've had to be really creative. 
using iPads for telemedicine, housing the most at-risk in hotels left nearly vacant by a lack of travelers, isolating the symptomatic in tents inside the First Covenant Church in Minneapolis, and keeping shelters and soup kitchens open 24-7 and using them to hand out educational materials on safe practices. Making do with less is nothing new for these workers or their clients. Easing some of the burden will be the passage of the CARES Act three weeks ago, a $6.2 trillion relief package of which $4 billion is earmarked for the homeless. It's much needed because on any given night in the United States, there are just over half a million people who are homeless. While the average life expectancy in the U.S. is just shy of 80 years old, for the chronically homeless, it's just shy of 50 a 30-year shorter life, and making some folks in their 40s de facto senior citizens. An icy wind burns and scars, rushes in like a fallen star through the narrow space between these bars, looking down on prison grows. While we're talking numbers, consider these. There are about 2.3 million people in jails and prisons in the U.S. criminal legal system. It's the highest incarceration rate in the world. And there are important differences between jails and prisons that matter when it comes to COVID-19. Prisons hold people tried and convicted for a felony. Prison stays are longer. Jails, by contrast, typically hold people awaiting trial or posting bail. Jail stays are shorter, and the turnover rate is higher. More on that later. But in both locations, you'll find people at higher risk for poverty, illiteracy, premature death, and chronic physical and mental disease. These are not facilities where generally people get healthier before they leave. Dr. Rebecca Schlafer is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School who studies the intersection of healthcare and incarceration. So incarcerated people are entitled to health care, but it's not of the same quality uh, as what you and I would get in the community. And the other challenge of these environments is that they're typically not set up to allow for any kind of social distancing. Um, and depending on the facility and depending on the state, they may not have tremendous opportunities for for hygiene or basic hygiene, right? Um, beyond that, though, I mean, you just, you're in living conditions that make it impossible possible to separate. Um, depending on the facility, you may have, you know, large groups of people, 20, 40, 50, 100 in the same kind of living area. And so it's challenging to think about how, do, how does any public health professional issue guidance to a prison to say, you know, social distance when the physical structure of the environment simply doesn't permit that. I came across one reporter who called prisons a petri dish, another who labeled them isolated incubators. But there's nothing isolated about them. I spoke with a Minnesota woman named Chris. Her daughter's been in the Minnesota Correctional Facility for several years. It holds over 500 women. The simple part is, I guess, just uh, worrying that this could spread very quickly in a facility of that size with that many women in a small area. I think they are safe amongst themselves, but I think when you have the outside people coming in, like the staff, that's where I think then it gets a little more nerve-wracking. The jails are an entirely different um, challenge, and they are churning in and out. 
Again, Dr. Rebecca Schlafer of the University of Minnesota Medical School on how to reduce the number of people in jails and thus infection risk. At the jail level, the conversation is, how do we slow the flow of people who are coming into jails? The other question, how do we, not only how do we slow the flow of people into jail, how do we get the people who are in jail, who again, have not yet been convicted of anything, how do we get them out of jail now? So how do we release all of those folks that are pre-trial who would not be considered a risk to public safety? One need look no further than Cook County Jail in Chicago for a case study of how bad it can get. The 4,500-person facility has already had over 400 confirmed COVID cases and three deaths. Nearly 130 staff have tested positive. Hundreds of nonviolent inmates have been released, and a 500-bed quarantine facility has been built off-site. In other words, what happens in a prisoner jail doesn't stay there, including when it comes to the coronavirus. Skin deep underneath We all look the same Skin deep Skin deep Underneath One of the things that I study is structural racism, which refers to the totality of ways in which societies foster racial discrimination through these sort of reinforcing systems like housing, education, employment, earnings, benefits, credit, health care, criminal justice. Dr. Rachel Hardiman is an assistant professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. And I think what we're seeing with our current pandemic is that all of those factors are being sort of hit by this pandemic. So where you live, where you work, or your ability to work, if you're able to work from home, if you are a low-wage worker and considered essential and still have to go out and in public um, and can't, you know, shelter in place, you know, your ability to have safe, secure housing, all of those things that we know matter for health and health equity are being impacted and eroded through um, the COVID-19 pandemic. As social problems go, structural racism is massive, long-standing, entrenched, very real, and a key to understanding how COVID disproportionately affects people of color. It's incredibly frustrating. You know, we, I think certainly as a nation, have accepted that there will just be differences in health and health outcomes and experiences in the healthcare system based on race. And that's just sort of the way it is. You know, we go on with our day-to-day lives sort of immune to the fact that these disparities exist. And also, I think, feeling like, well, that's not part of my job to fix. But what if it was your job to fix it? I put this question to Dr. Jamie slaughter AC. She's a social epidemiologist and colleague of Dr. Hardiman's at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. She thinks the place to start is from the inside out, not the outside in. I see that in research and in studies being put forth on non-COVID-19 public health issues. Those who are proposing the public health intervention or the research question or the study are proposing it from an outsider's perspective without incorporating insider's information into how that intervention is going to affect those within a particular community. And so creating 
culturally sensitive public health interventions is really important. And that's why there's a need for federal, state, and local leaders to involve stakeholders from these communities that can give possible insight into how COVID-19 strategies may affect their communities. Something to consider. In Louisiana, one-third of the population is Black, but Blacks account for over two-thirds of all COVID-related deaths. In Chicago, the mayor reported that Black people account for over half of those who have tested positive, and 72% of the COVID-related deaths. And flee the place you love Tough as nails when things got rough Many fathers told their sons and daughters Don't stop running till you're home According to the Wilder Foundation, Minnesota is home to over 400,000 immigrants and refugees. Many of these, like the Hmong, Karen, Liberians, and Somalians, have fled war-torn countries. The largest foreign-born group is Latino, representing about 7% of the state's population. And there are now over 75,000 Somalians. Ziad Umer is one of them. He came to the Twin Cities when he was 22. There are challenges. And there are also barriers that, that, that we face as a minority, as a people of color, as someone who is not English's first language. So I had to take ESL classes just to work on my English language. So I couldn't speak much. I only knew a few words. I could only speak a few words. Now Ziad is 40. He has a wife and two children, works as an interpreter, is studying for his bachelor's degree in public health, and sends money home every month to his father and siblings. We work in assembly lines and delivery jobs in the restaurant and transportation. Those jobs which don't pay much and have not, don't have much benefit like leave of absence or, or insurance. So once you're not out of, once you're out of the work, then you're out of the work. Sadar Mamadov knows the plight of Somali refugees well. He's a food and nutrition educator with the University of Minnesota Extension Program who works closely with Somali immigrants. Not only is he seeing people who aren't getting enough food, but he also worries if they're getting enough information about COVID-19 and how to protect themselves and their families. It is very difficult for people with limited language ability to vet the information coming their way from every direction. So my experience suggests that the credible information should be distributed through culturally relevant channels, such as faith-based organizations, respected community leaders, uh, maybe local grassroots organizations, uh, basically organizations that have been in long relationship with the community and uh, have established trusting bonds with with that community. I mentioned to Ziad, the Somali interpreter and father of two, that the Minnesota Department of Health actually has a fantastic COVID website in four languages, including Somali. They don't know that this website exists. So they are not, they're, not, they're not aware of it. And there we have a Somali TV, we have a Somali radio. I think we can use those two as a tool of uh, spreading the word. And what about the Latino community? What are its particular challenges during this pandemic? Marlene Huerta Apanco is another public health student like Ziad, as well as a policy fellow at the Minnesota Council on Latino Affairs. 
there's a lot of undocumented people in my community that are fearful of being able to drive to work, as many of them are afraid of getting pulled over. This alone makes some of them question whether or not they're able to even get to work or go to work. Um, many of the people in my community are in meatpacking jobs that declare them vital, and so they're forced to go to, to work in order to not lose their jobs. Many of them are frustrated, even though they want to stay at home, but none of them are getting stimulus checks from the government, even though many of them do pay taxes. This actually makes it hard for me to deter them from small social gatherings because they assume they're more at risk at work than they are within their community. It boils down to this. Health is a human right. Passive acceptance of health inequities amongst immigrants, homeless, incarcerated, and people of any color is not, and never should be, an option. COVID-19 has laid this bare. It's in our face. Yes, we can turn away. Or we can join with our fellow humans and look for solutions. This won't be easy. It will simply be humane. Before we close this podcast, I'd like to go back to Amy Gordon, the nurse practitioner who works with homeless folks in Minneapolis. Something came to mind for her when she was thinking of some of the older homeless people she knows. I'm a fan of John Prine, but he recently passed away from COVID and he has a lovely song. Um, I think it's called Hello or Hello There. And I think of that during this time and especially our elder population. So our 60 plus year old people experiencing homelessness that are now staying in the hotel in that they might not have anybody. They might not have family, friends, just being able to check in with them and just to say hello, hello there. How are you doing? The song is called Hello In There, and here's the last verse. I'm guessing a lot of us during this pandemic, marginalized or otherwise, could benefit from someone checking in with us, or we checking in on them. So if you're walking down the street sometime, spot some hollow ancient eyes. Please don't just pass them by and stare As if you didn't care Say hello in there hello. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. For more information on coronavirus, as well as some links we highly recommend, visit our website at sph.umn.edu. You can also subscribe to this series, Health in All Matters, in Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 17th, 2020, and the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide is roughly 2.2 million. A special thank you to Philip O'Toole of the Walker Art Center for sharing his audio expertise on this podcast. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other.